This episode was first broadcast on April 12th, 2021. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inoculate your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Dr John Froud talks about plagues, ancient plagues to future plagues. His new book, Plagued, has both stories from the past and explanations of the science interspersed with stories from his direct experience in the field around the world. John Froud is an infectious disease practicing clinician. He was in semi-retirement when the pandemic came along, so he went back to work, as did many of his colleagues. For several years, Dr. Froud's semi-retirement consisted of working in Kingston, New York for a month, and then taking a month off back in England. He spoke with me by Zoom from England. I began by asking him, how did he come to write a book about plagues? Having been practicing clinical medicine for such a long time, it was recently, about a year or two ago, or three years, I saw somebody with the bubonic plague in America. Goodness. In living time. And I was so staggered and that I, I took a step back and looked at this from a better point of view. And the more I looked, the more I turned up, and the more I got interested in this the subject, being the history of plagues, the sociology of plagues, because you're a veteran of the plague, are you not? So therefore you realise it's much more than just a, an account of an illness in the textbook of medicine. There's a lot more going on. And to think that the extent to which plagues had been overlooked by history in many ways, we don't like to think about them. We don't want to think about them. Oh, oh so, so that's why I wrote the book. That, that was why I wrote the book. And the more I wrote, the more I found out. And the more amazing it was that I hadn't thought about it in this way earlier in my life. There is so much there. I mean, one of the things that struck me at the beginning of the pandemic last year was mm. that I really had only found out about the 1918 Spanish flu really in the last five, 10 years that when yes. we did World War I at high school history, we did not cover the Spanish flu and it wasn't in the textbooks. Absolutely right. In fact, someone has written a book called The, the Pandemic That Never Happened about the Spanish flu. And it, and it teaches us a lot. And it was only 100 years ago. Yes. Just like you, I, I did O-level and A-level, O-level history. There was no mention of the Spanish flu. When you read the texts, the historical texts of the First World War, uh, the Spanish flu is reduced to a paragraph or, or a sentence here or there. And yet 15 million people died in the war. 50 million, maybe even more, died from the Spanish flu. And another thing about it is, first of all, it's nasty, so we don't want to talk about it. But we managed to talk about war for some reason, because that's heroic. People are rushing up hills to kill the enemy and so on. But the plague just lays you flat. 
it's humiliating. And many officers who died in the war, both English and American, they changed the death certificate, killed in the line of duty, killed in action, rather than right died from the flu, which was shameful or horrifying. And then in the decade that followed, the First World War, the 20s, uh, Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald, the, the lost generation, don't even mention it. Don't talk about it at all. It's extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary. And I was reading in your book that they didn't actually identify that it was a flu virus until much, much later. About 11 years later, which was pretty good, it was universally attributed to a bacteria that's still around, and that bacteria is called Haemophilus influenzae. And it was widely accepted as the cause of the Spanish flu. It wasn't. There were a handful of uh, outsiders and ne'er do wells and rebels who, who did think it was due to a virus, but they were ridiculed and their views were rejected. And there was a famous vet who noticed the disease in pigs and said, this is the same as the disease in humans. And he was dead right. He was absolutely right. The virus did go into pigs, swine, birds, and humans. That's influenza virus. And to be fair, perhaps a little bit fair, the idea of a virus causing disease had not really caught on yet. The medical profession is reactionary. It is slow. We've got a bit better recently, over the last 20 or 30 years. But when Pasteur came along in the 1850s, say, and said that some feverish illnesses were due to bacteria, again, he was widely ridiculed. And it wasn't completely accepted that bacteria could cause disease in, uh, until the 1920s, which is within the lifetimes of some of us who are still alive who were born then. So this is all very modern. The last hundred years has been a tumult of discovery, an absolute renaissance. What we've learned since the Spanish flu, what we've learned since 2000, 2000 is, is absolutely extraordinary. We're living through a, a renaissance of scientific knowledge, the like of which we've never seen. Of course, much of it is due to DNA technology, that's a big part of it, but, and other technologies, the computer, the electron microscope, these things. We've learned more about viruses since 2010 than we have in all previous time. That is amazing. And I never would have thought this time last year that we would have COVID vaccines by now. Well, COVID is unique. It's the first internet plague. Lots of things about it are a first for humanity, including the fact that, that a vaccine was constructed, at least one, three vaccines, within a year of discovering the organism that caused the disease. The way in which it was discovered was absolutely unique in human history. A Chinese molecular biologist, his name is Zhang, was sent some material on January the 1st, 2020, from Wuhan, from some people who had been sick or even died from this new febrile illness, within 48 hours, he had identified the virus. Not only that, he sequenced it so that every base pair of the RNA sequence of this virus 
was known within three weeks of the first cases. Nothing like that has ever happened before in human history. Quite the opposite to the Spanish flu, which took 11 years before they identified the virus. And he published his uh, sequence on, uh, on the World Health Organization internet service, where it lingered, for, languished for about a month before anybody noticed. But this is an example, and you would have thought, would you not, that with these remarkable advances in technology, that our reaction to the plague would not be characterized by the stupidities and the mistakes that had been made in previous plagues. You might have thought that, but you would have been wrong. <laughs> just, as, just as dumb in our reaction to the plagues as if we hadn't made these discoveries. So yeah. things like um, yeah. anti-vaccination goes all the way back to Jenner, I believe. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, to the beginning. And there have been anti-vaxxers all along and everywhere in the world, not just the United States of America or, or the UK, everywhere, everywhere, from the beginning. Yes, Jenner, they, they all thought they would turn into cows. And there was this, uh, they vaccinated. From the cowpox. Yes. So there's famous drawings of people with horns coming out of their heads. This is what happens if you get vaccinated. And there were in Nigeria, where people were vaccinating children against polio, they were thought to be agents of the devil, of, of the United States of America, who were trying to sterilize males by, by this injection. And a number were killed. Similar events occurred in Pakistan. And so you can find lots of examples all over the world of anti-vaccine attitudinization. God knows why people hate it. The great majority of people, however, are not anti-vaxxers. Uh, people are phoning me up every day. Can you get me on the vaccine line? If you look at there are the, the anti-vaxxers in Hollywood and other places, but 91% of Americans get their kids vaccinated in accordance with the recommendations of the CDC. So it's a fact there's always a coterie, a little minority of lunatics uh, who don't want to be vaccinated. But we're in favour of it, aren't we? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah. Although, of course, we're very short of vaccines in Australia. I am. We, we are. It's a political issue in Australia at the moment that the federal government mm. may have completely messed up its lack of a plan for vaccination. They put all their eggs in one basket for AstraZeneca Oxford. And of course, they've just last week announced that nobody under 50 should get that. I see. So most of us might not get vaccinated until late next year if we're lucky. I see. Well, how bad has the pandemic been in Australia? It's been pretty good because we locked down very quickly. And we also have the advantage of being an island continent, of course, so it's easier to quarantine overseas visitors. Mm -hmm. And putting those two things together with the testing and tracing, mm -hmm. we have very little, almost no community infections at all. The only cases we have are in hotel quarantine from people returning from overseas. Imported. Similarly, uh, New Zealand has done extremely well. And there are a number of Pacific Island states who haven't had any uh, cases because of rigid quarantine. Mm. Uh, Samoa, I heard, um, 
and, and states like that. And one of the reasons is that they've experienced it all before. They've been through it all before. Waves of plague have swept through Australia, imported by the colonizing forces. Well, yes, we did pretty badly in the Spanish flu in 1980. Well, not yeah. 1980, when it came back. Yeah, the first wave, that's right. The first wave was did not affect Australia very much, but then then the quarantine was relaxed a little bit and the second wave hit them badly. You have to wonder why they relaxed the quarantine so quickly. You know, one of my politicians universally screw it up. <laughs> it does <laughs> seem to be the case. <laughs> There's no other word for it. First of all, they don't trust the scientists. Yes. Uh, second, they overvalue their own ideas quite a lot. My favourite is that in the time of Shakespeare, at the beginning of the 16th century in London, uh, the bubonic plague was attributed to uh, stray dogs. So they gave him a halfpenny for if you bring me the carcass of a, of a dog, uh, I'll give you a, the state or the city fathers will give you a halfpenny. And this was tremendous. So all the dogs were wiped out across the city. The dogs had nothing to do with the transmission of the plague. The only thing they did was keep the rat population down. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so they made it worse. They made it worse. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia over the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And bubonic plague isn't gone from the world, is it? No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. In fact, Madagascar is, is in the middle of an epidemic right now where I think something like two or 3,000 people have died uh, over the last year or two. So it, it continues to exist. But because uh, of our understanding and of our better use of social hygiene and perhaps the, the bacteria has become less virulent with time, because this is a tendency for microbes. They tend to become less virulent. It's only now with DNA technology that we've been able to detect mutants or variants, such as we're doing with COVID-19. The virus is called SARS-CoV-2. The disease is called COVID-19. And the virus, being an RNA virus, mutates very rapidly. This is why it can rapidly adapt to a new species why it jumps from species to species so easily. And it mutates rapidly. But it's not in the interest of the virus to kill the host. If it kills the host, it kills itself. So mutants that are selected tend to be less virulent over time. And people often say to me, and they probably say it to you too, how do you think this is going to turn out? Well, we know very well that you can't predict the future. Another unique thing about this virus is, is its immunology. It's something that we've never seen before. Here is a viral pandemic that doesn't really affect children who have an immature immune system, but they don't get the disease for some reason. So this is extraordinary in and of itself and proves that our ideas about immunology, which is immensely complex, are still a long way from, from perfect understanding. This virus is unique, and so therefore you shouldn't make predictions about the future. So I'm going to make one. 
right now. <laughs> there was a, it's in the book, there was a, a global pandemic in 1890. It was called the Russian flu. And, uh, you know, if you haven't heard of the Spanish flu, or the Spanish flu was suppressed by history, the Russian flu was suppressed even more. But some uh, genius uh, uh, vets, actually, in Belgium, noticed an outbreak of coronavirus in cattle. And they sequenced the virus, and it was very similar to a coronavirus that causes a common cold in humans. And they did a family tree, and it went back to 1890. And they figured that these two variants diverged in, in 1890, the year of the Russian flu. And so what happened with, this, with the Russian flu? It came back three winters in a row, each time slightly less virulent than the year before. And after that, it disappeared, except it didn't disappear. It became a cause of the common cold. So that was the natural history of that coronavirus. And they predicted back in 2007, when nobody was interested in coronaviruses at all, no, no, they discovered, you know, we're interested in AIDS, we're interested in curing cancer and so on, paid no attention to, the, to this story of the coronavirus. That seems to me a highly probable outcome of this. These mutants are going to, they're going to get, they shouldn't alarm us too much because they're going to become less and less virulent because that's in the interest of the virus's survival. Well, that's that's good to hear, because I know with the 1918 flu, towards the end of the pandemic, it got nastier and killed people within a few hours. But I guess that would yes, lead indeed. it to burn itself out. Yes, indeed. It, it came in waves. We, we've also been talking about waves with with COVID-19, but it's it's not exactly the same. It's not exactly the same. Because there's no pandemic that's had waves before. Only the Spanish flu. That was the only one. And it's still not fully understood, of course, why it was so virulent that third time round. 50 to 100 million people killed. It's huge. And it's funny mm. that we, I guess, people want something to refer to, so they keep trying to imagine that this pandemic is like the 1918 yeah, pandemic when they're, they're different. Mm. They're different. They are different. For a start, they're different family of viruses. So plagues have been with humanity forever. Ah, yeah. Excellent. Excellent point. Um, yes, what, this, that's another question. What the hell is a bloody plague? Uh, to start with, <laughs> what is a plague? Um, why do we take them for granted? Why do we naturally assume? Well, what it is, what we you know, it's to, to try and get to understand what a bacteria is and what a virus is and how potently they have uh, interacted with other forms of life, including, including ourselves. And this goes to a very deep level. But there's been a seeding since the first bacteria. In fact, some people think that RNA was the first molecule on Earth the first replicating molecule, and then somehow that uh, led to a DNA virus, but then a virus had to have a living thing in which to replicate. 
because that's the point about a virus. They can only replicate in other living things. But in this great seething morass of, of DNA life and, and evolution and multiplication uh, and so on, there's, there's always been a battle between, um, so it's a search for resources, isn't it? Um, that the bacteria wants to eat you because it's good food. Uh, and, and so this has been going on throughout evolution, long before primates came along, there was this, this battle that led to illness. And when the primates did come along, um, it had reached an, an extraordinarily advanced um, uh, state of interaction. Firstly, the immune system, immensely complicated immune system. That, that uh, the complicated nature of the immune system is a testimony to the number of viruses and bacteria and other microorganisms as well, with which we have been wrestling uh, through the millennia. Uh, um, there are 10 to the 33 viruses on the planet. That's a huge number that I can't even begin to grasp or comprehend, except to say that 10 to the 26th is the number of stars there are. So the number of viruses, we're awash with viruses all the time. They're in the air around us, we're swimming through them. Uh, and many, we've only identified less than 1% of all the species of viruses that there are on the planet. Uh, but only, only 200 of this enormous number are pathogenic to man. Uh, perhaps some more were before, but we have evolved immunity to them. This is pointed out by AIDS. When you lose your immunity, various viruses that are harmless to you and I uh, become damaging to, to the patient whose immunity is lost because of infection with the human immunodeficiency virus. Right, so the first point that, that is there we are, we have this immensely complicated immune system and it has the means of adapting to viruses it hasn't even seen yet. That was the first part of my discussion with Dr John Froud, infectious disease practising clinician, about the diseases that have plagued humanity. His book Plagued will be released in June 2021 by Ben Bella Books. Listen next week for the final part of the interview. Scientists think that most colds are caused by extremely small microorganisms called viruses. Viruses, and there are many different kinds of them, can be scattered with each particle of saliva and mucus. When one sneezes or coughs, for instance. But do not think for a moment that cold-producing viruses are spread only by sneezing and coughing. If by some magic, the tiny particles of saliva and mucus could be made visible as a black smudge, we quickly would realize in how many other ways we are apt to scatter bacteria and viruses all around us. For instance, Jane here has a cold. Look at those germs she leaves on the doorknob. And here's Bob's hand picking them up. Bob, his hand now covered with germs picked up from that doorknob, transfers them to a book. Sue, having the bad habit of wetting her finger to turn pages, carries the germs from the book to her mouth and then passes them along with a pencil to Anne. Anne carries them home and leaves them on the family's dinner table. Yes, even during an ordinary conversation, saliva and mucus particles escape our mouth and easily reach others who inhale them as they breathe. 
You see, what you think is a simple cold could really be the first symptoms of some other disease, such as measles, infantile paralysis, diphtheria, whooping cough, scarlet fever, influenza, and others. However, even if your illness proves to be only a simple cold, it is still important that you take care of it. The best defense against the common cold and all these other diseases is to keep up the body's natural resistance. To do so, you must eat regularly and well-balanced meals. Get lots of exercise and fresh air, but do not exhaust yourself. Keep pencils and other things out of your mouth. Never take bites of other people's food. Do not use somebody else's drinking straw or glass, not even within your own family. And wash your hands frequently and thoroughly, especially before eating. When you wash your hands, you wash away many of the disease-carrying smudges you may have picked up. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.